Well, we ended chapter 9 with the sounding of the, uh, the sixth trumpet, which ushered in the, the end of all things. And, and you would think now that we go to chapter 10 tonight, that we'd go into the seventh trumpet. You know, that's, that's significant, man. That's exciting. And I've got to tell you that uh, that's not the case. Even though we're going to chapter 10, we're not going to be looking at the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet, by the way, is where Christ's reign over all the cosmos is announced. It's going to be awesome to get there. But we won't get there till chapter 11 around verse 15. But we're going to have this pause. It's a, it's a, a pause in these, these judgments that have been firing out of heaven. And, and they've been coming with greater rapidity as time goes forward in the seven years of tribulation. And now all of a sudden, it's a pause. It's, an, it's almost like a halftime. It's an interlude. And what we see happening is very interesting. Uh, in, uh, here in chapter 10, John chronicles the appearance of a mighty angel. And, and this mighty angel comes. And the sound of seven peals of thunder come from this angel. And the beginning of the end is about to take place. And a direct, John himself ends up with a direct encounter with this angel. John actually enters into his, the vision that he saw. Very interesting. That's the first, this is the first time in Revelation that that's happened, that he enters into the vision. Um, it's happened in other places in Scripture. It's not new to Scripture, but it's new to Revelation. And we'll, I'm not going to go into it right now because we will later. One more word about the, this pause or this interlude is that this, uh, this thing is very interesting. If I can just explain to you, this is not the first time in Revelation that we have a pause. The first one occurred back in chapter 6. If you recall, that's when the first six seals were broken by the Lamb of God. Nobody could break the seals except for the Lamb, right? And you would naturally think that we would progress to the seventh seal in chapter 7, coming out of chapter 6. But instead, chapter 7 took us into a pause, another halftime, another interlude. And interestingly enough, uh, there were actually two interludes in chapter 7. The first interlude was concerning the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And, and it was spoken about how they were sealed by God. These natural, these Jewish evangelists sealed on the earth before the Great Tribulation. The second interlude was right after that, and it was a reference to the great multitude in heaven, which appears after the Tribulation. So God sealed these 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Uh, he seals them uh, on earth before the, the tribulation, and then after the tribulation, we have the, the great multitude in heaven that John saw that was so magnificent. We talked about that and how, you know, it would be incredible just to hear the heavenly host singing. Wouldn't that just to hear the heavenly host? That would be enough. Uh, no, it wasn't enough because now a multitude that John saw that he could not possibly count. There were so many. And what, they, what he saw were saints, people who many had suffered in the, in the, the suffered persecution 
to the point of martyrdom during the tribulation, and now they're in heaven rejoicing. And we said back at that point that the greatest outpouring of salvation is yet to come. If you think about the, the great revivals that have hit the world, you know, over time, none will be greater than in the tribulation as multitudes will come to Christ. And it's pretty awesome. And yet, and yet, Jesus said, uh, narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few there are that find it. So even though there's multitudes, that multitude is still few compared to the, all the people that have lived on this earth that will not make it into heaven. Because, you know, wide is the gate that leads to death, and many there are that find it. Many. So... Why a pause in chapter 7? There's two interludes that we're going to hit in chapter 10, and let's go back to chapter 7 again. Uh, they, had, they had the same thing, two interludes. Why? Uh, well, these interludes in chapter 7 and chapter 10, they serve a very dramatic purpose, okay? Uh, they, they build for us the anticipation of the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet, what God is about to do. So there's this, this anticipation that we now have. This, but more importantly than that, much more importantly, is they bring a pause to the judgment of God. God is about to unleash judgment on the earth. And He pauses. He gives man an opportunity to repent. We've seen this already in the first nine chapters. We're going to see it again after chapter 10. The times, the number of times that in the midst of the judgments of God being poured out on the earth for sin, yet God would still declare the gospel and He would still have this, these opportunities for men to repent, to be saved. And that is the beauty of our God. Beauty of our God. So, uh, God brings us through the six trumpets. He brings us through the six seals. And He brings us to the edge of the brink of the great judgment. And then He pauses. And uh, He did it both times. So that His mercy could just extend a little bit more. Let's talk about God's mercy and justice for a moment. Before we get into our text in chapter 10. We will get there. It's a short chapter. So we've got time tonight, okay? God's justice and mercy are seemingly, on the surface, if you think about it, justice, mercy, they seem to be diametrically opposite, that there's no way they could be compatible. After all, justice involves the dispensing of deserved punishment for wrongdoers. I mean, look, if you do something wrong, there's a price to pay. I do appreciate today what I did not appreciate when I was growing up. That if I acted up in church on that front row, I would get the look from the piano bench from my mom while she was playing. I can see it like this. She's playing and she'd go. <laughs> or from the choir loft where dad's sitting and that look. And let me just tell you what that meant. It didn't mean settle down. It meant when you get home, you're going to get it. Because... We had the warning before we got to church. We knew how to act. 
we knew perfectly well what was required of us, so he didn't, he, neither of them needed to give us another warning. That's the problem today with parents. Exactly. If you do it again, if you do it one more time, over and over and over. And what you're doing to your child is you're frustrating them. I remember one time, Rini pulled that trick with, with Mark. Mark got spankings on a daily basis. And one, one day he had done something or he was getting ready and she caught him and she said, Mark, don't do it. And she says, if you do it, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. He started walking toward, Mark, Mark. And then she finally said, if you, do it, if you take a step closer, I'm going to spank you. Well, he didn't take a step closer. He walked over to the drawer and pulled out the paddle and handed it to her. <laughs> then she said, well, wait till your dad gets home. And then he started crying because <laughs> he knew there's not going to be any mercy at that point. You were offered three or four times that were more than you should have been offered, you know. So that, but that's how we are. We're, we're always looking for another chance. What, what do we hear people say all the time? That's not fair. When I was a youth pastor in Daytona Beach and we were going to, to Disney World, I call it Line World now because you wait in lines all day long. Anyway, um, we, we, we had scheduled the trip. It was for like September or something. It was after school started back. We had scheduled the trip for a date, and I told all the students and passed out flyers to give to their parents. I communicated with parents in a parent meeting that the, the, the trip is on this date, and a week prior, I have to have your final release form signed, and everything's got to be turned in one week ahead. We had a fundraiser so that there's no child that couldn't go on the trip. If they showed up for the fundraiser, they'd have the money, they could go. We did everything we could, but I held to my, to my guns on the deadline that they had to have things in. Well, there was one girl who didn't turn everything in. In fact, she was just procrastinating and putting it off. And I kept telling her, you need to get this in. The date's this Saturday. We've got to have it in by Saturday. And she didn't. So a week later, that morning, we're getting on the bus. We're getting ready to head out. We're loading all these kids up, got a bus full of kids, and a car comes pulling in the parking lot real fast, and the mom jumps out, and the little girl, she comes running up, and she just starts to walk up on the bus. And I said, hey, hang on a second now. Stay right here. And the mom comes over. You know, we just, we just felt at the last minute that, that we wanted her to go on this trip with you guys. And I said, no, you, you chose not to go on the trip. Oh, no, no, we never chose not to go. We just didn't make a decision on it. I said, no, you did. You chose not to go. When? When did we choose? Last Saturday. That was the deadline. Somebody needs to hold people accountable for their decisions. By the way, procrastination is a decision. You decided to not decide. But you did make a decision. And, and, and so we, we, we do that, okay? That's who we are. We let our kids off the hook way too easy. And I'm not trying, I think if you ask my kids, none of them would say you were a bad dad. We, we were consistent as parents. We tried to be consistent with our kids. 
And, and so they knew the rules, we knew the rules, and we had a wonderful life together. It was good. Did we have people, uh, rule breakers? Yeah. Did we fail as parents? Yes, we did. <laughs> uh, there's things that I wish I could go back and do over again. Uh, that's all of us, right? But the reality is that uh, God cannot pull back his justice so he can be merciful. You do understand that. If you look at all other gurus of every other world religion, whoever their deity is, whoever their god is, little g, um, in all religions, those gods can just ignore the wrong you did and appease you, and you appease them. You appease them and they, they forgive you. That's how it works. In other words, they're lawbreakers. Those gods don't follow through with what they said. And so they just let people off the hook. You do understand your God is not like that. Your God will never surrender his justice, his holiness, so he can be compassionate and merciful. What your God did was he postponed the punishment for Adam and Eve and those in the Old Testament until his own son could die on the cross for all man's sins. Then God had a just reason for his compassion and his forgiveness. Don't think for a second God's just winking at you when you sin and he's letting you off the hook. No. The great price was paid by Christ on the cross in order for you to be forgiven. For God's mercy and justice to stay intact, He has to find a way to fulfill and satisfy the sin requirement, the sin debt. And He did it through His own Son, Jesus, for us. Isn't that wonderful? But God is a merciful God. But just don't think that because he's, because he's showing a little bit of a, he's holding back a little, getting more time. Don't think that that means that somehow God's mercy is winning out over his justice. It's not. God is both. God is holy and he is merciful. He is just and he is loving. He's all things all the time. Never is, are they in conflict with one another. That's, that's because Christ fulfilled everything the Father asked him to do. We're getting ready to launch into a verse-by-verse -verse study of the book uh, or the Gospel of Matthew. I'm so excited. I've been doing a lot of reading. If you could just see my screen at home on my, in my office, I, my, my, my grandson was playing a game and he broke my screen. He fell off the side of the, 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 the desk. And so, okay, I go out and get another screen. And it's just a little bit bigger. It's about that wide. And it's got the curb. And if you could see right now on my screen, I've got my Libronics library, my Logos library, which is my Bible study, tools, everything. But then across the bottom, if you look for the Word, you'll see 12 right now. There's 12 different pages, or not pages, different documents of Bible study that I'm working through right now. I'm just so excited about Matthew. And early in Matthew, we come to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus makes a clarifying statement. And he says, I didn't come to what with the law, in regard to the law. What? He didn't come to ignore it. 
He came to what? To fulfill it. To the nth degree. Jesus did not want us to come up with our own rules or standard of righteousness because he knew that that standard of righteousness would not hold up to the justice and the holiness of God. So he himself fulfilled the law completely, wholly, so that he, Christ, the fulfiller of the law, the one who is righteous, the one who is perfect, the one who has never sinned, could go to the cross and could suffer the sin debt that we accumulated on himself. He became sin for us. And so, so it's just, to me, it's very important that we see this, that we see how God, when we, when we see God acting in mercy, don't think that somehow, well, I'm confused because I thought he was just and, and righteous and that he would judge. And then when you see him judging, well, I thought he was merciful and compassionate. Believe me, he's all that, all the time, all the time. In fact, to the Ninevites in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, it says, they said that he's a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So there's that one aspect of God. He desires that men would repent. He doesn't wish that any would perish, right? Isn't that what the Scripture says? And then in Psalm 145, David said, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, give great and loving kindness. The Lord, listen now, listen. The Lord is good to all. He wasn't just speaking of Israel. Every human being that's ever been born on this, the Lord is good to all. You say, how could you say that? Because God has given to all men on this earth common grace. It's not saving grace. Common grace will not save you. Common grace allows every human being to breathe air. Common grace allows every human being to find, if they choose, a mate to have children, to work hard, to have a home, to be able to have clothing. That is all given through God's common grace. None of, listen, there's nothing in common grace that can save you. Only saving grace can save you. But see, David said, but the Lord is good to all with common grace, and his mercies are over all his works. Does God not know that the world is in sin, lost in sin? Yes, he knows. But he's desiring to give common grace. God so loved who? The world. <laughs> and so th th this is the Lord. He's, he's this God of justice and he's this God of mercy. In Isaiah 45, verse 21, there is no God apart from me, a righteous, just God and a Savior. There is none but me. That's God speaking, man. That's who I am. Micah chapter 7, verse 18, the prophet says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. By the way, that's playing out here in Revelation. God did not hold his anger against Israel forever. In the Great Tribulation, he sends 144,000 Jewish evangelists to reach Israel, 
many Jews will be saved in the tribulation. So that, that scripture, that's an Old Testament prophecy, really, of what we're studying now. In Deuteronomy 32, verse uh, 4, He is the rock, His works are perfect, and all His ways are just. A faithful God who, will, who does no wrong, He's upright and just. In the New Testament, Paul details why God's judgment is coming to the earth. Okay, the reason he's got, look, God's just as, as right in his mercy as he is in his justice. And the, what's right about justice is Colossians 3, 5, and 6. It says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And he lays it out, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So God is right in His mercy and His grace, and He's right in His justice and His judgment. The Bible showcases the fact that God is merciful, but it also reveals that He's just, and He will one day dispense justice on the sin of the world. And we're, we're, that's what we've been studying in Revelation. In every other religion, none of them can claim to be like our God. They don't come close. Amen. Uh, that's what makes Christianity so unique, is that our God shows mercy through justice. If you had to ask most kids today, would you rather have a parent who just lets you live however you want, go wherever you want, come in whenever you want, leave whenever you want, or would you rather have a parent that puts some qualifiers, some boundaries in your life? Even today, most kids would say, I want the parent that cares enough to say no to me. It's true. And that's what our God does with us. And I'm thankful for it. I know you are as well. That's what makes Christianity different. The Christian doctrine of penal substitution states that sin and injustice were punished at the cross of Christ, and it's only because the penalty of sin was satisfied through Christ's sacrifice that God extends His mercy to undeserving sinners who look to Him for salvation. God's justice and God's mercy work hand in hand. His mercy is best seen through His justice. Now, let's get back to chapter 10. I want us to really be able to focus in here tonight. And it's a short chapter, but it's an interesting chapter. Here we have a similar pattern uh, that we saw in chapter 7, that interlude or that pause. Just when we're ready to hear the seventh trumpet sound and see God's mighty hand sweep down through the earth with more events of judgment, we're held back and given two more interludes. Let me tell you what the two interludes are. Remember now, in chapter 7, the two interludes, the first one was the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. The second one was the great multitude that John saw uh, after the tribulation in heaven. Here, the interlude, the first one, there's two again. And the first interlude takes up all of chapter 10. And in fact, it goes into chapter uh, 11. Uh, and and the, the attention of the interlude is on the prophetic word of the Old Testament. In other words, the focus is on the Word of God that's already been given to the prophets. 
That's, that's what he focuses on. The first interlude is about, is about the prophetic word of God in, in the beginning. Okay? Now, the second interlude takes up chapters 11, 1 through 13. And the focus is the prophetic word of God during the final tribulation. There are going to be those who speak the word of the Lord boldly, like the prophets of old, in the face of great opposition, the greatest opposition to ever hit the earth. Many have identified this, 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 this time in the, in, in the tribulation as a time when the church is gone. And, and, and it's very plausible that that pre-tribulation will happen, that the church is, is caught up with the Lord in the air and they never come back until the Lord returns with them. That's very, very possible. That's plausible. Um, but what if the church isn't? Guess what? Then the church too, along with the two witnesses, along with the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, the church itself will become evangelist in that time. Those who are living during the tribulation will, will speak the word of God. Most of them will be killed for speaking it. There's going to be the most incredible persecution that the world has ever seen. And so that's, that's what we find here. Now, let's look at verse, if we can, let's look at verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. Many have identified this mighty angel coming down from heaven uh, as the Lord Jesus Christ, the, a messenger from God. And they see it as Christ himself. Why? Because some of the imagery that's a, that we're going to read here in a moment also fits Jesus. But there's other things, characteristics, and things that happen by this mighty angel that I believe do not fit Jesus at all. And so we're going to look at this and try to draw a conclusion. Uh, this mighty angel is more like the strong throne room angel that you and I read about in chapter 5. One interesting point is that John goes to greater length to describe this angel more fully than he does any other holy being that he's described so far in Revelation. This mighty angel came from the presence of God. This mighty angel was in the throne room of God before he was sent to the earth. Okay, uh, Several aspects of this, this majestic being's clothing and appearance point us to other passages of Scripture. There's a lot of parallels here. Let's look at them. We're going to go slow, okay? Uh, go ahead and write down Luke chapter 9, verse 34. Write down Exodus chapter 16, verse 10. The reason I have you write those two passages down, okay, again, the Luke passage is what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Ezekiel passage, I'm sorry, the Exodus, Exodus 16, 10 passage is what happened when God led the Israelites in the, in the wilderness. Okay, And so if you look at what it says in verse 1, it says that this mighty angel comes down from heaven wrapped in a cloud. Was there not a cloud that the Israelites followed by day? Exactly. Okay, so that was, you, you might jump to the conclusion, and you would be jumping 
well, then it has to be God. It has to be Jesus that came down from heaven in, in chapter 10. No, that doesn't necessarily apply. But there is a, there is a parallel, okay? The same in, in Luke 9.34, after, after the transfiguration occurred, uh, God comes, brings this cloud. And of course, he speaks this thunderous voice to Peter, telling him to shut up instead of speaking so much. Peter was just running his mouth about how, let's set up some monuments here for the Lord. For, uh, and God's like, would you just be quiet and listen to what he's saying? Listen to Jesus? Some of us need a come to Jesus meeting. Don't we? At times we get a little bit, a little loose in our mouth, and we're we're talking about COVID like it's the it's the one thing on the earth that none of us can overcome, and nobody can possibly. And uh, our God's greater than COVID. And and I, I I I look, I had it. I know what it feels like, and I'm telling you, I had great peace laying there in the middle of the night in that hospital room got out of my bed, went over and, and got on, on the uh, recliner with a blanket, and the window was right there, and the rain was hitting the window, and God and I had sweet fellowship, and He put me in a place of total, absolute peace. No matter what happens, whether I live or die, I had this sweet peace with Jesus. And, and, but the reality is, yeah, God wants us to walk in godly wisdom in all things. So there's certain precautions that you take. But don't let the precautions be driven by fear and doubt. Amen. That kept the Israelites out of the wilderness for 40 years because they would not trust God. You think this is the first plague that's ever hit the earth? Do you think for a second that more people have died from COVID than any other plague? That's not true. This is, this is a little tiny bump in the road compared to some of the plagues that have hit the earth. Millions upon millions of people killed by a plague. And even in those situations, nowhere in Scripture does it tell us that we're supposed to walk by faith and not by sight unless COVID comes. Honestly, I'm watching too many Christians who are being led in their decision-making by fear and doubt. That's right. Walk by faith, not by sight. Be wise, yes, be wise. But live your life for Jesus. Amen. What if somehow, and the Lord knows, He knows everything, he, he has foreknowledge, what if the Lord knows that you're going to die of COVID in six months? What are you going to say to Him after you die when, when you had six months to preach the gospel? And all you did was sit in your house for six months. Or all you did was stay away from people. You know, there's, it's, it's a wonderful tool. It's been around now for close to 100 years. It's called a telephone. We can all pick one up. You, you can make that a ministry. I remember hearing a story years ago. Pastor Womack, I bet you heard the story. Of this woman who was blind. An elderly woman in her 80s, blind. And she wanted a ministry. And the Lord just opened up her. She had a phone. And she had her little names and numbers written out in Braille. She was able to call people every day all through the year, ministering to people, praying with them over the phone. And supposedly in her church, she was the minister. People saw her that way. 
powerful ministry, a blind woman in her 80s. Now in her 80s is nothing. My mom's in her 80s, and she'll probably be around for another 40. I don't know. That used to be old, didn't it? Some of you should, some of you should say amen, because you're getting closer to it. <laughs> oh. So anyway, I, I mean, just, let's just get back to what we're talking about here. The reality is God wants us to walk forward. He wants us to be faith forecasters, not doubt pushers. Joshua and Caleb out of the 12 spies were the only faith forecasters. Everybody else, 10 of them, doubt pushers. When you push doubt on people and people follow you in your doubt, you know what Jesus said, if you lead one of mine away from me, you'd, better have a, you'd be better off to have a millstone tied around your neck and you thrown in the depths of the sea. You don't want to be the person who casts doubt and fear over God's people. That kept them out for 40 years. It kept their parents, the ones who had doubt and fear, they never got to go in. In fact, God put it in their, in their face. He said, you know, you're telling me that your children, if you go into the land, your children are going to die because you're nothing but grasshoppers in their eyes, blah, 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 blah. He said, well, guess what? You're going to die out, the whole generation of you, 20 years old and older, and your, your children are going to grow up. They're going to be farmers in the wilderness. They're going to grow up. Your children that you said would die in the promised land, they're going to take the promised land. I'm going to deliver them from a disease that you put in them. The disease is doubt and fear. I'm going to deliver them. And then they're going to know what delivery looks like, and then they're going to go in and take the land with faith believing. Amen. That's how God wants us to live right now. Amen? Amen? Amen. Folks, if you're listening from home, if you have, a, if you have health concerns, we totally understand why you're home, and you should be home. You should be. And others of you are trying to be very careful, and it's not out of fear that you're making decisions. It's out of just wisdom, and nobody's going to speak against that at all. But if you're just being lax, letting fear and doubt rule you, well, you're going to end up with a come-to-Jesus meeting. He's going to talk to you about that. That's not how he wants his people to live. What a terrible witness Amen. to this world that we as Christians would be filled with fear in this time. So I've said enough. Let's keep moving. So we have this pause. We see this angel. He's wrapped in a cloud. And then secondly, a, a rainbow over his head. Might have been like a multicolored turban is what it sounds like, but... I don't know, an angel has this rainbow, multicolored rainbow. Uh, Revelation 4.3, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an em Again, that's the throne room of God. That's God himself. So you're thinking, man, this is thinking of God. Well, and his face was like the sun, it says, like the face of Christ as he first appeared to John in Revelation 1.16. And then it says his legs like pillars of fire like the fiery pillar that accompanied Israel out of Egypt at night, right? Exodus 13, 21 would be a reference to that. 
So it would be very easy from what we've read about this mighty angel coming from the throne room of God that it's, it's talking about Jesus himself. But quite honestly, there's other aspects of this that don't line up. They just don't line up. Uh, I'm going to say, I would, I, nobody knows, we don't know for sure. So please don't take what I'm saying as the gospel. It's not. I'm going to give you my, what I believe, my conclusion is. It's probably, if it's a mighty angel, it could be Gabriel. It could be Michael. It's one of the, one of the archangels. Because there are similarities to this mighty angel described in Daniel 12.1 and Daniel 12.6 and 7. Let me give it to you. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of the wonders of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half time. And that when, they, when the shattering of power of the holy people comes to an end, all things would be finished. That wasn't speaking of Jesus. That's speaking of one of the great angels. So whoever uh, this, this angel's exact identity is, it's not clear enough for us to just say it's Christ, and we can't say that it's Gabriel, and we can't say it's Michael. It's, it, we're not really sure. But here's what it does say, verse 2. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now the question is, is that little scroll the same as the scroll that Jesus, the Lamb of God, opened in heaven? That's back in chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. If it is, then that makes the, this person none other than, than Jesus Christ, right? But John used different words to describe this scroll from that scroll. He refers to this scroll as little. It's probably best to see that the two scrolls are different, yet probably closely related. In other words, they're, they're probably carrying information from God regarding uh, what's happening in judgment, or what's going to happen after the judgment. And, and yet, they're not the same scroll. This little scroll is perhaps a short version of the disposition of all the things that God's going to do as He continues with the tribulation and beyond. What we do know is that the contents of this little book are nowhere revealed in Revelation, but they seem to represent in this vision the written authority given to the angel to fulfill his mission. So. Its meaning is a mystery to us. Uh, some design, uh, some believe that God has concealed from us these mysteries. And I think that's true because we're going to see here in just a moment as he speaks to John directly in the vision. And we find that there are things, there are mysteries that God revealed to the prophets in the Old Testament. And there are mysteries that have yet to be revealed. God hasn't given us everything. Uh, he says in verse 3, and, and called out with a loud voice, this mighty angel, like a roaring lion, when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. This relates to the same idea of the thunderous voice of God as described in Psalm 29. Let me read that for you. Turn, turn to Psalm 29, and let's pick it up at verse 3. I'll give you a second to get there. 
The phrase, the voice of the Lord, which he uses here in our text, the voice of the Lord. Uh, this is repeated seven times in Psalm 29. It says, the voice of the Lord is, verse 3, is over the waters. Okay? In our text, he's actually standing one foot in the sea and one foot on land. So he's over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The, the Lord breaks the, the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and sirloin like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. In verse 9, I can get to my notes. Amen. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry glory. In Revelation 8 5, and in chapter 16, verse 18, we see thunder accompanying lightning and earthquakes and they serve as a prelude to the end-time judgment on an ungodly world. Probably then, what the thunders, these seven thunders are speaking, was further detail about the end of the world. But we don't know. It's not clear. Now we get into something else that I want to talk about here. Verse 4, and when the seven thunders had sounded, remember now, you say, well, wait a minute. If it's the voice of the Lord, then that means... Uh, then God is speaking. Yes, that's right. That's very identifiable as God. But this mighty angel might not be Christ, okay? Verse 4, And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven crying or saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Don't write it down. If the Lord didn't want us to know what the seven thunders were saying, why would he have John record it? That would only frustrate us, right? Wait a minute, you, you, you said something in all seven voices, John heard it, and then you told him not to write it down. You told him to record that, that, you, that you said it, but you're not giving us any insight. Can you know how, how that must frustrate Bible scholars and theologians to not know what exactly that meant? I, I think, personally, it's recorded to let us know that there are secrets in the prophetic scenario, mysteries that should be kept uh, a secret. And let me, let me just break that down for you, what I mean. There are things about God and about the, the end and about future prophecy that has not been clearly revealed. And God does not want preachers and others to get up and act like this is the way it is when they don't know for sure. There are aspects to future prophecy that still are not clearly laid out. So when the Bible is clear, we can speak clearly. When the Bible is unclear, we can say, well, it could be this, it could be that. We don't really know. I think that's why God allowed John to write it down, but not speak what it is. Okay? Uh, so we shouldn't speak of things that haven't been revealed as though we know what they are. Verse 5, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, he raised his right hand to heaven, and here it is. 
and swore by him who lives forever and ever. When do we see Jesus Christ swearing by heaven? Never. Swore by him who lives forever. Swearing by himself? Swearing by the Father? You don't see that in heaven. You don't see that on earth anywhere. If this were Jesus, I don't think he would be swearing to, by God. Amen. However, could we see Michael or Gabriel swearing by heaven? We, we did. Take your Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, look at verse 6. So Daniel 12, verse 6. And look at the latter, it's not right at the beginning, it's inside the verse. Daniel 12, 6. It says, He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever. Does that sound familiar? And it wasn't Jesus. It was a mighty angel doing that. Verse 6, And swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, going back to, if you will now, go back to Revelation, verse 6, and in verse 7, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So there were things that God announced to the prophets. The prophets spoke them, and they will be fulfilled. By the way, the prophets didn't have full understanding of the things that they were speaking. It really was God who spoke through them. The mighty angel gave a solemn oath declaring that the end is irrevocably set in motion, that there should be delay no longer. There was absolutely, what, basically what he's saying is there's not going to be any turning back. We've come to a point now, there's no turning back. This is it. It's about to happen. The mystery of God would be fulfilled. What mystery of God? That's a good question. Whatever the mystery is, it's been declared to his servants, the prophets. The mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. In, I will say this, in biblical terminology, I was studying today and I thought this was very interesting. In biblical terminology, a mystery isn't something that no one knows. A mystery is something that no one knows unless it's revealed to them. If you could know it by intuition or personal investigation, it would not be a mystery. When, when you speak of the Bible mysteries, that's not something you would get on your own thinking, your own ability to reason and research and investigate and come to a, a right conclusion. It has to be revealed to you. Okay? Isn't that true for salvation? It's God has to open you to see it. The Holy Spirit has to uh, allow you to see that. And then He can regenerate you when you believe. Mysteries in the Bible have to be revealed. Therefore, something can be known and still be a mystery in a biblical sense. So what is the mystery of God revealed to the prophets? What is it? Because He doesn't, he doesn't give it. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, again, I can't speak with clarity that I know what it is. I don't know. But I'm going to take you to what Scripture says the mysteries of God are in the Bible. Okay, Let me give you several. The ultimate conversion of the Jewish people is called a mystery. 
in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Romans 11, 25. God's purpose for the church is called a mystery. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3 through 11. Ephesians 3, 3 through 11. The church is called a mystery. The bringing in of the fullness of the Gentiles is called a mystery. In Romans eleven twenty five 25 again. The living presence of Jesus in the believer is called the mystery of God. That's found in Colossians 1, 27 through uh, chapter 2, verse 3. The living presence of Jesus in the believer is called the mystery of God. The gospel itself is called the mystery of Christ. The gospel itself is called the mystery of Christ. That's found, you know that, Ron, because you've been studying Colossians. Uh, chapter 4, verse 3 of Colossians. So in the context of what he's saying here in Revelation, the mystery of God, it's plausible that it refers to the unfolding of his resolution of all things, the finishing of his plan of the ages. He, just like the scroll that only Jesus could open as he opened it. What is, it has the title deed to the earth. It has the full, the, the full picture of the judgment of God on the earth. God is satisfying every single requirement through judgment. So, interesting, one, one scholar said, the mystery of God which is declared as subject to fulfillment is unfolded, therefore, in the Old Testament in the many passages which speak of the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. Now, it could be answered uh, in different ways, and, and, and the answer could be through other questions. Maybe God is going, the mystery of God is the questions that you and I have that He's going to finally give the answers to. Remember, there were seven peals of thunder, and in each one, there's a, words that are spoken that God said. You can write down that He spoke, that he spoke these words in the thunder, but don't write down what he said. Okay? Questions like, why does God allow Satan and man to rebel and go their own separate way? That's a question that a lot of people ask, okay? How about uh, the question of God is, is, is holy and just, and he is the beginning and he is the end, but there's so many things in life that seem to fall apart, where's God in that? I've had people ask me that question. It's interesting. God is the beginning and the end, the resolution of all things, the gathering together, the summing up of all things through Christ. In fact, in Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So God has ordained that in this life there are going to be many, there's many questions that you have. Do you have any questions about, about life? Do you have any questions about heaven? Questions about this earth? Questions about just about the Bible? Who knows what these answers are going to be? We don't know. Okay? Go to verse 8. Then the voice that I heard, that I had heard from heaven, spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And right there he calls him an angel again. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat. It will make you, your stomach bitter, 
but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So, so now John enters the vision. And this voice from heaven, God speaks to him and says, I want you to go over and take that little scroll that this mighty angel is holding, and I want you to eat it. And in your mouth, it's going to be sweet as honey. But in your stomach, it's going to be bitter. It's, it's going to give you an upset stomach. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 1, Ezekiel was commanded to eat a scroll. Remember that? The revelation of God to Israel. That's what that scroll was. This figure of eating the book is familiar and suggests the feeding of the soul on the Word of God. So this little scroll that the mighty angel holds, John goes over and he starts to eat it. And remember now, there are prophecies that have already come and been fulfilled through the, uh, the prophets of the Old Testament. And there are those in the New Testament, John in particular, who God has given a message to, to take back. And he said, I want you to take this word that I'm giving you, and you're going to, go, and you're going to eat it now, and it's going to taste good. But in your stomach, as you deliver it, as you give it out, it's, it's going to be hard. People aren't going to always receive it. It's going to sour in your stomach. I'll tell you this, as a pastor preaching, there is a sweetness to preaching. There's joy as you deliver the Word of God. And there's anxiety. Did I do justice to the Word? And looking at people who are resisting it and just the angst of your heart for them. I'm not, somebody asked me one time, how do you do it? How do you get up there week after week when you know you look at some faces and they've never changed in 20 years that you've been pastoring them? How do you... Doesn't that just eat you alive? Well, there is angst. There is. But at the same time, I'd rather them be sitting there getting the Word of God, knowing that God, by the Holy Spirit, could reach them than them not being there. And so, you, as a pastor, you, you continue on. You, you, you preach to people knowing that God's the one that does the work in them, right? I'm just glad to have the opportunity to preach the Word. And that's, that's what he's saying here. He's talking about, John, you're going to have to give the Word. This Word's going to come through you. And this figure of eating the book is familiar. It should be familiar to all of us. That, that's what Jeremiah said, isn't it? And that's what Psalms said. The Psalms said, 119, 103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. But when I had eaten it, verse 10 in our, in our text, my stomach was made bitter. So initially, it tastes sweet, but becomes bitter in the stomach. Every revelation of God's purpose is bittersweet because it discloses not only the will of God, the Word of God, the work of God, it discloses the judgment of God. You can preach a message on salvation and go home as a preacher knowing that it was sweet to talk about the mercy and the grace of God and the way of salvation, and also know that those who didn't receive it today sitting there listening are going to face eternal damnation. So he's preparing John. Any effective communicator of God's Word and any Christian who's worth their salt and their light 
you're communicating the gospel. Everybody who does that, you've experienced the sweetness and the bitterness of sharing. Amen? Verse 11, And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So whatever the context of the scroll, it's connected to John's command to prophesy to all men. This is not a message focused to the church because John's prophecy spoke of the fate of the entire world, not just one nation, not just one empire like the Roman Empire in that time. Okay, it's everybody. So what's the main idea here in the text? It's the sounding of the seventh trumpet that's about to happen which is going to announce the full completion of God and His plan of judgment. And His word that's going to go out, that John's going to take back, and that others will speak in the tribulation is going to be both sweet and bitter. As we move through these days with the riots and people rising up and the self-centeredness and the flesh carnality ruling this earth as it is, it's harder and harder to share the truth of God's Word in the sense of the boldness it requires. You have to pray up. You have to ask the Holy Spirit, give me boldness to share today. Otherwise, you'll cower in fear. You've got to to prepare yourself every day. And be prepared for the sweetness of sharing the good news and then the bitterness of seeing the fallout of those who don't receive it. They reject it. It's just the way it is. If I can give you a closing thought on chapter 10, nobody likes delays. I mean, I don't like delays. If I go to a ball game, I, keep playing, man. I don't want to half time. Uh, let's get the game over. Let's, let's get on with it. And, you know, you know what it's like if, if, if you're going to get married and then one of the spouses, you, you want to delay it a little bit, and it could be frustrating to you. Maybe some of you experience that. I don't know. Uh, nobody likes delays, okay? Uh, if you have educational plans, and now there's COVID, and now there's classes that are online, and sometimes schools close like they did last year. And you're like, man, another delay. There's delays all around us. And that's what we see happening here. God's brought a delay. But there's a message in the delay. From a human point of view, the return of Christ is the most delayed promise ever given. I mean, look, the first century, the first century Christians, they said that the return of Christ was soon. Maranatha. Come soon, Lord Jesus. And yet here we are, 21st century. He hasn't come yet. It's a delay. And yet that delay should build anticipation. A climax is about to happen. And when that seventh trumpet blows, what we learn in chapter 11 about the seventh trumpet, that's the trigger for Christ to return. We're going to study that, okay? We're going to come to that. So let me give you a couple principles. Some angels have an important duty in giving divine messages to humanity. And those who say that they know the dates for the final end of times, uh, they claim to know all the answers, they don't have a clue. Nobody does. How many times have you heard somebody say, it's going to happen on this date, on this date, blah, blah, blah. And then it doesn't happen, they turn around and come out with another date. And the same people go and follow them. Craziness. Craziness. God already has spoken clearly through His servants, the prophets, and He's going to speak clearly through you if you allow the Holy Spirit to guide you, if you are empowered by the Spirit. So, what's the answer? Be content not to know everything, 
right now. There are things that God has hidden from us, mysteries that will not be revealed until God says it's time. And there's questions that we have that we don't have answers to. Don't get hung up on questions. Go with what you know. That God's given you more than you need to know. And He's given you the most important things to know. He has not held back from us the things that are important concerning Christ and salvation and our future. So go with what you know and be faithful to God in it. Proclaim the Word of God as, you entru as, as God entrusts it in you and as you share it with others. Don't let rejection keep you from a fa being a faithful witness for Jesus Christ. You've got to maintain your faith, whether we're in an up season or a down season, whether it's easy, whether it's hard, whether we're traversing a mountain or we're just cruising down a, down a stream in a, in, a, in a tube. The reality is we must be consistent in sharing and loving this world. Let them know about Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, tonight, may we just take this simple little chapter and may we find root, may it, may it find root in our heart tonight. May it be more than just knowledge in our head, but Lord, may we take it in the sweetness of Christ, the sweetness of the Word of God, the sweetness of what we've learned uh, tonight about, about what's coming. And may we chew it good. May it be like honey to our lips that Psalm said. May, Lord, it just be swallowed, internalized. And, Lord, as we share it with others, yes, it will upset us. It will, it will make us anxious. But, Lord, I pray that we would be, remain faithful to share it. God has told us tonight that there's going to be those who reject and those who receive. Be faithful to share it, and especially as the days get darker going forward. We know that, Lord, light and darkness are incompatible. That if there's darkness and we bring light into the darkness, it will lighten the room. So may we be faithful to carry our candle and light the room in Jesus' name. Amen.